Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast for Thursday, October 8th, 2020. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me, as always, a very sleepy-looking Noah Rothman, associate editor. Hi, Noah. Hey, John. Uh, a, a somewhat sleepy-looking Abe Greenwald, executive editor. Hey, John. And uh, not you don't look sleepy at all, Christine, senior writer Christine Rosen. I don't <laughs> hey, know why. Yeah, we right. were all, of course, up late last <laughs> night watching and then reacting to the vice presidential debate, um, which has now been over for, I don't know, 10, 10 or 11 hours since we... Uh, since we watched it, and it is already fading into the mists of memory. Um, uh, Christine, you had a great line last night about uh, about the dynamic, or you know, sort of like what what we were looking at as oh. as the debate <laughs> began. Well, about a few minutes in, um, I was trying to figure out what what it was about the lack of charisma that was weirdly a- appealing about both candidates, and I and I felt like it was. It suddenly struck me that it was like when two vice principals are addressing an assembly after a school riot. The school <laughs> riot was the first debate with Trump and Pence, and so it was both weirdly calming and completely lacking in charisma. But it was also, in a strange way, exactly what we needed at that moment to be reminded of what had come before. Abe, you uh, you found. You precisely found this to be the case. Yeah, I, it's right. w- what I realized watching this uh, last night because I was I was I f- was quite engaged um, watching it. Um, was that um, sort of chaos and craziness um, and unintelligibility has gotten quite boring. It's it it gets boring. It's not it's not per- it's you'd think it would be um, in some sense you know sort of riveting. Um, because there's been nothing like it, and because everyone likes conflict, in fact, it gets boring. And and this this mm-hmm. by contrast um, was was a relief. And so was, it was interesting. It's like it's like a later season of the Real Housewives. Like once you've seen the Trump, you know, if you've been watching the Trump Show for five years, uh, you know, you, you you sort of got it got it down. And then maybe there's the Biden Show, but of course Biden is absolutely refusing to play uh you know the part of the new entry into the real housewives cast you know he's not <clears throat> drinking and therefore throwing furniture or you know like getting into a fight with the with his with his husband or whatever so so you've had enough like you 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 got you got your fill of the crazy is what you're saying I think that's so. Yes. I'm, okay. I've not watched Real Housewives, but yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm just going with the cultural yeah. uh, cultural. I'm going to go with one other cultural analogy and then ask Noah to respond to it, which is uh, there was a kind of brilliant debaters moment pretty early on in the debate uh, when um, uh, ha- Kamala Harris was going at the administration for its coronavirus response, which she called the worst presidential administration behavior or something in history, which is a pretty, you know, strong thing to say. And then uh, Pence got offended and said, the American people have been sacrificing and putting themselves on the line and, uh, you know, and, and I won't have you stand here essentially, and insult the American people in their response to the coronavirus. Now, it's a brilliant tactic because when you, in debating to score a point, if you can shift, you know, and they teach people this, you know, in, in debate, if you can shift the the subject just slightly so you, you, you appear to be addressing it, but you move off the your weak point to refocus it on something that you consider a stronger point, that is sort of the sort of thing that if you're looking at debate simply as a performance matter is a kind of clever move. But to me, it struck me that it was it was the the closest real world equivalent ever to Otter in National Lampoon's Animal House when they're being disciplined at the big disciplinary hearing, saying that attacking you know a fraternity uh, fraternities have a great long history of existence. 
and uh, they are part of the fabric of America, and he won't stand here and let you attack the United States of America, and then marches out of the disciplinary hearing, right? So, so basically, Pence was Tim Matheson in, in Animal House. Noah, how do you like that uh, pop culture? We've now gone from Real Housewives to National Lampoon's Animal House. Yeah, I, I, I mean, by modern standards, Animal House is high culture. So uh, I think that was very, very deft. Um, I, la- I really enjoyed last night's debate, in part for the reasons that Abe said, that it was sort of a window into the before time um, where you could demonstrate that it, it was what we used to call politics, where you can be evasive and mendacious and put words in your opponent's mouth, but do so um, while preserving the patina of civility and decorum and decency. And that's that duplicity is what we used to call politics. It's like, it's a dance. And if you're, you're in this business, you were attracted to it by that choreography. It's an art. It's not easy to do. And there were a lot of people I'm writing about this today. In fact, there were a lot of people who were very frustrated by the level of evasion that we saw on that stage last night, because it was rare that you got a direct yeah. answer to a question. Um, but that's that's a non-answer is an answer in and of itself. It shows the campaign's hand um, and tells you where they think their strengths are and where their weaknesses are. And it's pretty clear that Pence had the advantage on issues. Um where he would, they would talk about climate and he would pivot to the Green New Deal. They would talk about pre-existing conditions and he would pivot to abortion and Amy Coney Barrett. They would talk about the peaceful transition and he brought up impeachment. All these things are weaknesses for Democrats. Kamala Harris was equally evasive on COVID, on court packing, but what she pivoted to every single time she had an opportunity was Joe Biden. Joe Biden is the advantage. There was no defending Obama. There was no defending herself. She wouldn't even improvise when Mike Pence made an exploitable mistake, like when he said, for example, that the public deserves to know the, the health and, and wellness of, of the president, when this White House has been nothing but closed when it comes to that information. Easy to pivot off that and make a moment out of it, but she wouldn't. She was relentlessly on message, unflappably so. And the message is Joe Biden. And that's well, a tough she, one to get over. She did uh, do that very practiced and staged I'm not going to stand here and let you lecture me on criminal justice. I'm the expert on that here uh, bit, which was um, the signal to make a big issue out of the mansplaining uh, thing. It was the, you're standing here as a man telling me. I would say the, the, the signal was sent out within the first 10 to 15 minutes of the debate when she made a big display of being interrupted. Right, right. right. She wasn't, even really, she wasn't even really being interrupted. I mean, that was very practiced and everybody picked up on what the subtext was. Well, right. And so you either, you either were like, oh, come on. What, what are you, what are you kidding me? This is a vice presidential debate. Nobody's, you know, you're not being, or you're like, yeah, this is like every man, what every man does to every woman. Well, can I can I just push Christine, back? Can I mansplain that to you a little bit? Mansplain away. No, please, please. <laughs> this, you mansplain to me. So this was this is one of the things we were joking about last night on the text thread because it, it cannot be the case that we've gotten to a point in our in, in our politics in the twenty first century where when a man and a woman debate, anything the man says is mansplaining. I like I will I refuse to adopt that, and I know that the media is kind of trying to go with that a little bit with Harris. It's ridiculous. They both did fine. I mean, they they both kind of did what they were there to do. I will say this though: what struck me and to clarify something I said the other day that a, that a very staunch Democrat friend of mine whose opinion I respect uh, chastised me for was in saying that um, the pivot to Joe Biden um, and that Joe Biden's not an empathetic person. I didn't mean him as an individual. I'm sure as an individual in his personal life, he's he's practiced extraordinary empathy. People who I whose opinion I trust, like the lovely Megan McCain and others have said, like, he is a really decent guy. And here's the ways he was decent to me. That's not what I was saying. I think the weakness of the Joe Biden, Kamala Harris empathy campaign as a campaign strategy was revealed last night when she tried to uh, weasel her way out of uh, answering policy questions. Because when she talked about COVID, she didn't give any firm evidence of anything dramatic that the Biden administration would have done differently if they had faced COVID. I mean, there were a few things like this vague contact tracing stuff, which lots of people have had uh, very serious arguments about the challenges that would face the United States doing that and whatnot. But most of the stuff, like they can't mandate a 
wearing of masks. They can't shut things down. Those are the those are the state's responsibilities and local government's responsibilities. So I, that's where I found the weakness of the empathy are play that they're making and for which Joe Biden is the figurehead, far less appealing after last night's debate, even though I think and agree with my friends who who have met Joe Biden and say he's a very empathetic human being. I don't doubt that. But I think as a campaign strategy, it's it's weak insofar as I don't see a single policy message that was dramatically uh, new, except that, you know, Trump bad. Biden is not Trump. Abe, um, I think that Harris... Uh who I think did fine. I think Pence did fine. I don't really think that anybody won or lost particularly. I mean, who knows? I, I know the first poll said that Harris won, but of course that could mean that that was a CNN audience poll. And who knows? Like if, mm-hmm. if that's their audience, then of course Harris is going to win. Um, I was struck that uh, in, in the times gone by, had this been days gone by, uh, her answer on foreign policy uh, was the sort of thing that could have been catastrophic at a time when people really cared about foreign policy. She completely mishandled, was confused by, and flummoxed by uh, her effort to make the case that the Trump the Trump had handled the Mid East badly well and it's not that that's not an argument that can be made it's that she didn't know what she was talking about and in in palin-esque fashion i mean it, it reached the level of oh really i mean this is you're going to be vice you're going to be a heartbeat away from the presidency you don't know what's in the iran you don't know what's in the iran nuclear deal anyway go ahead well yeah well she launched into it with the um um Sort of diametrically false statement that um, that the uh, Trump administration was uh, alienating friends um, and embracing enemies. I mean, you know, we know that Trump praises Putin, but if you're going to talk about the Mideast policy, you know, you and you know, uh, Pence didn't miss the opportunity to respond by saying this: the the administration embraced our closest friend in in, in the Middle East. Israel, like like no other um, uh, president to to come before him. Well, there was what she did that moment. Yeah, go ahead. No, sorry. Um, Vice President Pence made a very risky move by suggesting, saying outright that Kayla Mueller, who was uh, killed by ISIS, um, her family believes that she would be alive today if Donald Trump was president at the time and not Barack Obama. That's a risky play. You can make a lot of hay out of that. You can, you know, posture indignantly and say that's, you know, just uh, beyond the pale. But instead, she pivoted to um, two really dubious stories about the president. This is this is her being so relentlessly on message about the president that she can't she couldn't improvise in a moment. Um, she talked about how the president had uh, attacked our service members and called them losers and how uh, the the White House didn't respond in any appreciable way to the the story that Russia was uh, financing and paying uh, militants in Afghanistan to target and kill American soldiers. Both of those stories are not confirmed to my satisfaction. Right. Also, um, I, sure. I, just, I just want to say, and then when Pence responded to that, um, to the uh, soldier um, uh, slander, um, by talking about his own family service, he was cut off by the moderator. And the, the only thing I thought about was no one, no one with a job anywhere in punditry has ever cut off Joe Biden talking about a family member's service. Right. That would well, never have. That is a license to go on and on and on. Um, and amazingly, the, she, the Pence was cut off during that. Again, I thought that you know, if if this was if this were a matter, and we could talk about why I don't think it really is a matter, why policy is really not a matter here, but if this were a matter of you know comportment on issues as a you know as a potential leader, her address to the uh, Kayla Mueller's family, where she said, "I know your story, and it's awful, and it shouldn't happen," and Joe feels the same way was horrible like it's of course it's all it's like that's what you say to somebody whose kid was killed in a car crash 
not somebody who was kidnapped, taken hostage by a radical Islamist group that was attempting to establish a caliphate uh, in the you know in the in the heart of the most destabilizing place in the world was repeatedly raped and then slaughtered. Like it's not you know as I say it's a terrible thing when you're you know when your kid is hit by a train. Uh, it is not a terrible thing when you are taken prisoner captive and as a as a some kind of representative figure of the United States are tortured, raped, and killed. That requires a stronger response from somebody who is going to be the vice president of the United States. And you know that Democrats know how to do that because we've been having this sort of mostly online uh, lecture, privy to this mostly online lecture from progressives about the distinction between tragedy and atrocity, particularly when it comes to law enforcement. Whenever there's an act of law enforcement that is perceived to be excessive and violent, it's not a tragedy. It's an it's an attack. It's an atrocity, and and an earthquake is a tragedy. Right. You, know, you know the difference. Yeah. And so when they appeal right. to that, and Kamala right. Harris is is truly versed in that language, so she knew what, exactly what she was doing and not doing. But here's my. But it doesn't matter, and her 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 uh, deep discomfort talking about you know the most important thing that a, a president actually has to deal with, which is foreign policy. Uh, discomfort and unfamiliarity, and then her awkwardness in dealing with this, with the Mueller family, they don't matter. And they don't matter because you guys may have liked the debate and you may have, you know, had a kind of nostalgic, you know, listening to oldies radio sense that, you know, this is when music was good. And now it's not just like all this rap and all this noise that, we, you know, we we old guys on our lawn, you know, scream about if we if we hear, you know, hip hop or some horrible, you know, synth pop of 2020. Um, uh, because... Uh, Issues don't matter. And that, that is what the Biden campaign knows, I think, to its marrow. And why Harris was fine, even if she punted on that and told this preposterous lie about Abraham Lincoln not appointing a Supreme Court justice 29 days before <laughs> before the election uh, when in 1864 when he didn't do anything because the Senate was out of session. And what, what that means when the Senate's out of session in 1864, they were all, it would have taken a week for them to get the letter informing them that there had been a Supreme Court nominee. And that, you know, the minute that he, they got back, they they literally confirmed that person in a day. So Honest Abe wasn't saving no nomination in case George McClellan ended up getting elected president. So we can fact check her and talk. None of that matters because what they know is that this election is about Donald Trump. That's what it's about. It's about Donald Trump and his handling of issues, I suppose. You could say it's about his handling of Corona, but it's about him and they, and all they want to do with the exception of fracking is not talk about issues. He, she wanted to make it very clear to every single person in the Keystone state of Pennsylvania that Joe Biden, who said that he was going to end fracking, and she, who said without question that you were going to end fracking, they're not going to end fracking. I felt like that was like the telethon portion of the debate where there should have been like an, an 800 number that popped up. Like, if you're a Pennsylvania voter, please call this number. We'll reassure you we're not going to ban fracking. Of course, they're going to ban fracking. I mean, it's the public-private land distinction that they're trying to tiptoe around. I mean, we have Biden on tape saying he wants to end all fossil fuels. I mean, this is not – this is – yeah, it was a but, complete falsehood. Yeah, well, I mean, but the thing is, you know, even when it's not on policy, when it's just about – when it's about the person of Donald Trump, um, she and Joe Biden also shamelessly lie. I, I, it has to be said. Um, there's a great many things to complain about Trump, um, but the message that Biden and and Harris drill home again and again, um, the the two sort of core ones are the uh, Charlottesville good people on both sides, which is not true. I mean, he was Trump was talking about the Confederate monument debate and explicitly said, not the white nationalists, those are bad people. Um, and that, that, that the president said the virus was a hoax. 
which is also not true. He didn't say that. He said that the Democratic claims about his response to the virus are a hoax. Right. Well, so this is the other thing about Trump being the subject and the object and the source of all matters relating to this election, which is that he has set the bar for speaking truthfully about your rivals and about your policies and everything uh, at at you know at at the level where you can't even limbo under it like it's lying flat on the ground and so uh, he has created here is the drinking word a permission structure for anybody to say anything about him yeah, yeah as long as it as long as it you know as long as it has some really even tenuous connection to a word that he may have said or a phrase that he may have uttered yeah because those things have been fact checked again and again and again. But yeah. they, they're not removed from ads. They're not not repeated in the next right. appearance. You know, it's just. Yeah. Right. Well, so um, so let's talk about this question. So on the one hand, it was a more substantive debate than the Trump-Biden debate because, you know, my when my son was three and fighting over a toy with a classmate, that was more substantive than <laughs> than the Trump-Biden debate. I uh, I would say, um, but did anybody hear the substance? Like all everyone on the right is saying, and properly, and I led my column in your post with this. She wouldn't answer the question about court packing. She refused to answer it. She refused to answer the question. She refused to answer the question. Better than that. I mean, it was that that was actually kind of like my favorite moment because not only did she not, not only did she refuse to answer it. She she sort of introduced this moment like, all right, you want I'm going to talk turkey about court packing. You want to really get down to court packing? Let's let's lay it all out on the table. <laughs> and then yeah. and then completely pivot right. to Abe Lincoln. Yeah, right. <laughs> no, no, what she pivoted to was she was like, let's talk about court packing. Yeah. And then she accused the administration of filling existing vacancies. Right. And also with, with, with no yeah. black people. With, and, and, with, and with with people, ideolo- ideological people who uh, liberal organizations don't like. I mean, she basically said that. Yeah. <laughs> she said that organizations say are not, you know, are, are too political or are not, are not good. You know, it's like, Which oh, is again, this is again, uh, 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 the people who hate these non-answers, you're getting an answer. That's the answer. The answer is court packing is extremely unpopular. Yeah, but good for Pence for saying you got your, I, I actually like that he yeah. kind of, he, once he painted her into a corner, he put his hand up and was like, yeah, you're not getting out of this corner, lady. And he said, like, right. you have your answer, America. They're going to, you should assume that they will, that it's on the table for them. And good for him because that's exactly right. what he should have done. Right. And that is, uh, but I mean, Noah's, you're absolutely right. So when you evade a straight answer, when you're talking about policy, the answer is contained within the evasion. Now, there are two ways of looking at that, one of which is to say uh, they won't answer it because they are going to pack the court. It is going to happen, and they don't want to say it's not going to happen so that when it happens, they're on record saying it's not going to happen. And the other is, they have a deliberate strategy of not making any of their policy positions or pronouncements to provide Trump or Pence or the Republicans with a hook that they can hook an argument to. And that is the proof that court packing, they know, having poll tested or whatever, that court packing is unpopular. So they're not going to say no because they want to keep their powder dry or because they don't want to offend liberals or something like that. And they're not... So that is a useful piece of information, but I wouldn't say it's a useful piece of information for 150 million voters. It's a useful piece of information for high information voters. And then the question is, is there any high information voter who yeah. hasn't, doesn't have his mind made up already? I, I don't know. I think, I mean, even a non-high information voter who sees that clip will see her evasiveness. And I don't know if that, I mean, again, you're, you're right in the, these debates, don't matter, et cetera, et cetera, especially the vice presidential debate. But that evasiveness speaks to and undermines the message that they have been making as part of their campaign, which is don't worry about the details, just trust us. And, you know, again, like that's clearly working if you trust the polls and maybe that'll work, you know, maybe he'll win in the first two years of their administration, that'll work. But I, I, 
I mean, as a conservative, that concerns me because I don't trust that they are going to steer us in the right direction on, on policy matters. So I don't know how many low information voters have any uh, concern enough about that, just the, the vagueness of it, or if that, in fact, is appealing to them because Trump is such a wild card. Um, it's but again, Mike Pence, Mike Pence was just as guilty of this. Yes, he did on, it too. Several yeah. occasions. Oh, both sidesism. <laughs> no, no I, if you're going to, I mean, if, there, if we're going to do dueling clips, you know, Mike Pence danced around the science of climate change and pivoted to the Green New Deal. I think he mentioned the, the words Green New Deal about 37 times, tells you how well that polls. Um, pre-existing conditions where he pivoted to, to health care, which turned into abortion, which turned into Amy Coney Barrett somehow, mm-hmm. uh, and most glaringly directly pressed as to what his responsibilities were as constitutional duties were as vice president in the event that the ticket loses. And will you facilitate a peaceful transition? He went off onto um, impeachment. impeachment. Yeah, that was a bad, yeah, that was a bad pivot. I well, don't know if not really, because, because right. it's a vulnerability for Democrats. Yeah. No Democrat has said the word impeachment since February. Well, right. I, I was, I thought that was interesting because he said um, when you, you tried to impeach uh, the president, um, that she never responded and said, um, in fact, uh, Mr. Vice President, the president was impeached. Yeah, he was impeached and I voted to convict him. Right. And the country, and if we had convicted him, somebody else, you would have been president during Corona and I bet you would have done a better job. I mean, you know, it's like... Well, that would have been horrible. No, <laughs> actually. Uh, but, you know, that, a vote of confidence in, in, in your opponent? I don't, no, I don't no, think, no, no, think I mean, about it. it. Think about it for a minute. Think about what a great play that would have been. Like, what is he supposed to say? No, I wouldn't have done a better <laughs> job. <laughs> anyway. Uh, well, thank you, know, you for praising you, our administration. No, I agree with that. We, you, no, we have you done would, a fantastic yeah, job. Yeah, you would have done a better job, you know, a dog would have done a better The dog that's barking in the back would have done a better job. How did somebody get a dog into that well, arena? I, we have to talk about the fly. I'm sorry. I know right, but I want to talk about the dog first. Was it a dog? I thought it was hiccuping at first. My kids thought someone was hiccuping. First, I thought it was loud sneezing. <laughs> then I thought it was hiccuping. And then I thought it was a yelping dog. Yeah. Um. But, like, can't you get up and leave if you have a – like, who brought the – did Karen Pence bring a dog? This Mike Pence's therapy Why dog? Do you hate yeah, I don't, I don't, comfort animals, John. Yeah, I, 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 I hate – yeah, I know. Okay. Um, the fly. <laughs> <laughs> so um, – The only unscripted moment in the entire debate. Right. Which is why it was notable. It The fly – sat on his head for two minutes and three <laughs> seconds. And of course, that is the only thing that anyone is going to remember in history from this debate is the fly. And there will be a set, there'll be an SNL routine about the fly on Saturday night, the fly, you know, um, and- within three minutes, there was um, a Twitter account for the fly on Mike Pence head. Yeah. They got, they got a hundred thousand yeah. followers. Yes. Yeah. Wow. And I was reminded, I was reminded of a, of the blissful old days of Twitter when Twitter was fun and not simply a garbage sewer heap when there was this story about a snake that had escaped from, from uh, the Bronx Zoo. You remember this? The Bronx Zoo snake? And then the Bronx Zoo snake... A Twitter feed starts and the Bronx Zoo snake all day is like visiting Times Square (laughs) and going to the Statue of Liberty. And it was delightful. It was there those old Twitter feeds, that one, the the um Conde Nast elevator. Anybody remember the the overheard overheard in the Conde Nast elevator? There's almost none of that left, none of that lightness of spirit left, because of course. We are facing the unprecedented darkness of the impending fascist takeover of the country. And, you know, if you make a joke, you are you are serving the interests of, you know, of the forces of, of, of darkness. But um, that and Sharknado, the evening of Sharknado back in, I don't know, 2011 or 2012, when everybody just sort of stopped and watched Sharknado on on. Uh, Great and, moment, and and and, 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 and yeah, and group tweeted Sharknado. Um, so the, only Ian so Zierling can bring us together. That's right. So, <laughs> so, um, 
I believe it's pronounced Ian. Oh, I'm sorry. Ian Ziering. My apologies to Ian yes. and his um, many fans. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, so that was, um, again, I, I want to just point out that Christine Rosen claims to be a critic of mass internet culture in every way, shape, or form. She doesn't like it. She thinks it's bad. It's changing our brains. It's awful. And she knows more <laughs> pop culture internet junk <laughs> than even I, well, maybe not as much as I do. She's no close. No, Come on. Okay, fair <laughs> enough. I just want to say that for a Luddite, you know, for a Luddite, you sure know how to run a machine. That's all I'm, I'm going to say. Um Anyway, the 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 Pence fly was a was a moment that harkened back to a to a sunnier, simpler time in America when when everybody could kind of share a laugh over uh, over a transparent absurdity that kind of could have happened to anybody. Although, of course, the fact that his hair is like jet white and that he must have had hairspray in the hair, which is why the the fly wasn't moving. Um. You know, so that's I. I don't know. Any anyone got anything to say about the fly? Well, I mean, only that once the fly um, got comfortable <laughs> and really didn't move. I assumed that I think everyone assumed that this was it. It was that that we were the fly was going to be there for the rest of the debate. Yeah, yeah, and that that was almost a moment of like panic because it was like I was enjoying this thing that was normal. Yeah. Um, right. And now it's we're, we're going to be shot off into surreal land once again, and then I was right. like, "Oh, thank God, the fly's gone." But that's that's it, right? I mean, it's it's omens, auguries, portents, dire. Like this is a, a sign from the Almighty that nothing can go right for this campaign. Right. You know, um, when I was uh, when I wrote my first book, "Hell of a Ride," which was about the decline and fall of the first Bush administration. And I, I was, I was uh, writing every day from you know like February '92 until the you know election day, and you know granularly sort of keeping a diary and everything like that. And the thing was like, Bush never had a had a good day. Like Bush literally, you know, except when maybe Perot dropped out at some point. Like Bush never had a good day. He never won the day. He never really had a good news story. And then weird things would happen. He'd have an event and it, there would be a lot of rain. You know, uh, a, a car in his motorcade would get a flat tire, stuff like that. Jimmy Carter went through this in 1979. You know, Jimmy Carter was attacked when he was in a rowboat by a feral rabbit <laughs> that was in the, in the water. And I, just like, you know, just as luck, luck is a very interesting thing and we focus a lot on good luck. And then there are just there's just bad luck and bad luck you can often you know it's sort of a false negative or whatever you might want to call it like you only notice the bad luck when you're looking for it because of course it, there is no such you know it's like it's like the coin toss thing about how what is your chance if you if you flipped a coin a hundred times and it comes up heads what is the next Coin. What are the odds that the coin flip is going to come heads the next time? It's the same odds. It's fifty percent. So luck is kind of a false thing, but metaphorically, that fly had to land on Pence's head. <laughs> it wasn't going to land on Harris's head because Harris is in the moment in the winning position, and so if something was going to happen and Pence was doing so well, relatively speaking. If there was going to be a moment in, you know, a metaphorical moment to suggest the dynamic of sheer luck that was going on, you know, is going on in America, it had to be that a fly was going to land on Pence's head. It's a it's a weird phenomenon in in politics that the 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 winner things just kind of you know go doors open when they're supposed to open, you know. Um, uh, you know, the uh, things work out. The mechanics go smoothly uh, when when a well-oiled machine is functioning as it as as it should, and it's somehow the universe seems or appears to conform to it. Um, so now, 
we move to how this where we've had this conversation for half an hour now and no one is going to pay the slightest attention to this debate by the time you listen because of course all we're going to be talking about is whether or not there's going to be another debate after this because the commission on presidential debates announced that it was going to have a, a virtual debate or you know a debate with the candidates in different places and donald trump said he's not going to do it Exactly. All right, I blame you if my post on this debate gets no traffic. Uh, fine, Just it's my fault. Step the wind out of my sails. Well, no, hey, I have a piece <laughs> up at the New York, but no one's going to read it either. Like, l- let's face it. I'm just saying Trump wouldn't even let this ride for five minutes so that we could talk about about that. He sort of, they, they, they announced at 7.30 in the morning, the Commission on Presidential Debates, that the debate is not going to be in person, and Trump immediately says, I'm not going. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to waste my time. Uh, thoughts? Yeah, so, like, how? I mean, I guess it's possible, and it would be a distinct disadvantage for the Trump campaign to not uh, or to, to participate in this Zoom debate because it really neutralizes everything that Donald Trump seems to want to do, to play off an audience, to engage with the other candidate to interrupt and to throw them off message. I mean, that's his whole strategy. So it would be really neutralized by a, by that format, but what else can you do? How you can't play prevent defense when you're down 10 points. If you're, how are you going to manufacture a moment without the debates? What are Senate Democrats or Senate Republicans rather thinking now as they feel the ground eroding out from under them over the past week? I mean, you're basically saying you're going to be hostage to events for the next 27 days. Or is this um, uh, like another um, relief package uh, gambit or not gambit? You know, will he will by the time this podcast is up and running, will will he will he say will he be in negotiations about right. a um, a second debate after all? I mean, I'm sure that's right. I'm sure they want the will he won't he you know speculation because you know it focuses the spotlight on him. He loves to be in the spotlight, but this is the problem. You need to get out of the spotlight. Well, and as he's been releasing all these little, uh, you know, like a like a morphine drip, these these videos of himself, you know, chatting everybody up, which he completely controls. And that I think you could justify making maybe one or two when he got back from the hospital or in the hospital or whatnot. But now it's starting to have a strange effect. Like, I just, I don't find, I don't find them persuasive. I mean, I'm not, I'm not the object of those videos. Obviously I'm not the audience for them, but I, I agree with Noah. I mean, if he, the other problem is that if he doesn't debate again in whatever format, the only debate we have to judge him on is that first one. And that was a disaster for him. Well, we have brief digression. Cause you mentioned these videos and we really have to at least, Note, yes, the <laughs> cloying desperation in the president's affect. John had a perfect analogy, and I'll let him say it. But I watched that video last night, and it's probably forgotten by now because there are like two others that came out in the interim. But the one there was one that came out last night that was just so desperate and it's kind of sad. And that's the last thing that this president needs to be perceived of as a sad, cloying, desperate figure. Well, I'm cons- my feeling is that um, Trump seems, you know, is a what? What do people call him? A disruptor, right? He's a disruptor. But his behavior over the last four or five days has been erratic, and. Uh, it's one thing to be a disruptor who is like phenomenally aggressive and seems very determined and alpha and all of that, uh, which, you know, uh, startled everybody in 2015, 2016, steamrollered every other Republican, has been the, f- the means by which he uh, forced the Republican Party or the elected officials of the Republican Party in the United States to become his cat's paws. Uh, and to lose any 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 position of of, of independence from him uh, and all of that, um, it's another to look like uh, you are a think one thing at five o five o seven and another thing at five twenty three. That is not reassuring. That is not like oh my god, he's so tough. Oh my god, he's such an alpha. 
oh my God, you know, it takes a tough man to make a tender chicken. Like he knows what he's doing and he's doing it for us. It is unnerving to watch somebody switch positions every 15 or 20 minutes or express strange euphoria in the wake of a three-day hospitalization for a for a uh, disease that has killed 210,000 people in the United States. And to say, I call it a cure. They call it a treatment. I call it a cure. But it's not a cure. A treatment is not a cure. And uh, it's an interesting problem because... Treatments are great, um, and it, if, in fact, uh, he is proving that Regeneron is a fantastic treatment for corona and that we are therefore going to buy lots of Regeneron and distribute it so that people who get it can have a quicker and better recovery, that's great, but it's not a cure, and that means that a lot of people either aren't going to get it or aren't going to have their symptoms mitigated by it, and people who get corona are still going to die. And he can't be walking around calling a treatment a cure. And he doesn't know whether it's a treatment or a cure. Because if his timetable is honest about when he got the virus, he is entering in in the next couple of days to a potentially dangerous period in which after seven days there can be some kind of a, a reversion moment where he gets really, really sick again. And aside from tempting the gods and all of that by by walking around saying he's better, uh, when everybody that I've known who has gotten this virus, you know, has a week to 10 days of being really sick with it, I'm sure people get it in different ways. But I mean, and, and maybe he got a less severe strain of it or whatever and that's great and uh, he should only live and be well um but this is not the talk of somebody who is you go who is needs to go and say to people vote for me now because i'm a resolute leader who is going to lead us through a difficult time and and so i don't see how that's not only is it not helpful to him what he is doing but it is adding, and I'm not talking about getting the virus and whether that shows that he's, you know, he's, but, uh, you know, that he deserves it or, you know, or, you know, aha, karmic. I mean, like, calm down, you know, don't walk away from a negotiation and then negotiate five minutes later. Like, don't, you look crazy and you look like you're having symptoms from the, <laughs> from the medications you're taking. And you're down 10 points, so you got to focus and, you know, climb back on a horse and ride that horse. And this decision to announce without any thought, without any thought, that he wasn't going to do the virtual debate is, again, a reason why other Republicans and Republican politicians, if this goes on for another 12 hours, are going to be desperately looking for an exit. The only thing I'll, I'll say about that um, is that what? Be, is, nope. What's wrong? Sorry, sorry, oh. Noah. We're we're on a I, I, we're on a Zoom, and Noah Noah just made a made a face oh. like something big happened. And I'm sorry. This is like when a ventriloquist is on the radio. Like I'm re- reacting to Noah, and you guys can't see Noah. I'm sorry. Yeah, and I was reacting to you. I'm sorry. I'm interrupting Abe, and Abe, you, you should continue. But I'm just, you know where where do they go? I've been saying they need to go somewhere four months, but no one listens to me. Or maybe there's nowhere to go. Uh, I, maybe they're all just you know prisoners on this doomed ship. Yeah, well, that it's kind of in keeping with what I was going to say, which is that um, it's very easy to look at what Trump has been doing and saying over the past few days and connect it to the steroids um, and um, some sort of mania. But the truth is, I, I don't see any discernible difference in what he always does. Uh, honestly, um, uh, if if this were someone else um, suddenly going into this erratic mode, um, I, it would be um, cause for actual concern about um, medication effects and whatnot. To me, the, he's he's 
this is just him. This is the way he's been all the way through. I don't know. I, I mean, I really don't think that the response to the stimulus negotiation stuff uh, was him. I mean, it's not that it, you know, I mean, there could be many causes of it. He could feel angry, desperate, worried about the polls, however you want to slice it, or it's, or it's an element of his, of his illness. But um, if he was going to walk away from the, from the negotiation, uh, part of it was walking away from, you know, the part of the strategy in his old, in his old, in the old days, three weeks ago, uh, would have been to walk away from negotiation and let people stew in their own juices for a little bit before, you know, if you're walking away from the table to have, to have, uh, to reset the table, not to do it 20 minutes later, like people are saying, what, what did you just do? What did you just do? Like, you're leaving us out here to do, you're, you're giving Biden the hammer, to, you know, the shovel to dig your grave with. And then he's like, no, no, I'll take a different bill. I'll take another bill. I'll take something like that. That's not like him. Like he, he, if he's going to, when he said to Nancy Pelosi, I'll shut down the government. He then did like, you know, it's like he did it. Sheila's like, are you really handing me this giant present? Like, oh my God, thank you. And then he didn't like read the signals and say, nah, I didn't mean it. He actually felt like he had to follow through on it. Like, I, so I don't know. I've been saying for months <clears throat> that Republicans need to do their best to localize these races. And I know John disagrees with me as then maybe that's not possible, but anything that reminds voters of the national landscape doesn't cut in the direction that Republicans want it to. And I don't know how you do that, but my best guess is you find the most popular politician with an R after their name in your state and grab onto them like they're flotsam in a shipwreck and just talk only about them, pretend they're the president, do whatever you possibly can to get everyone's mind off the figure in the White House because he's dragging the, the tickets down. He's dragging the down ballot down. Okay, I, don't, so I don't know if you can do that at this at this stage in the race. Maybe you could have done that in July and August. You probably can't do it now. But what other choice do they have? Okay, there is one interesting ray of light uh, in the poll. It's not a ray of light, but it's a it's it's a it's a it's the wrong way to put it. But uh, in the crystal ball, which is the report on sort of the state of the race and all the races from the University of Virginia's political unit run by Larry Sabato, uh, Kyle Kondik has a report this morning in which he says all the polling is terrible and all that. But he says that there are signs, particularly in the Monmouth polling, that uh, they're they're having difficulty getting responses from Republican seniors, meaning that in some of these polls where you see this catastrophic bottom falling out for Trump, um, it may be that, and you see these numbers like Trump is, uh, Biden's up by 27 or something, you know, they're, with seniors in some state or other, you know, which is a cohort that Trump won in 2016. So you're like, well, he's done. If they are not, if Republicans are depressed this week and have decided not to answer the phone or talk to pollsters, it's not a shy Tory effect. It's a different effect. It's a sort of depressed Republican effect. And it's not in the end that they're not going to go out and vote, which is why everybody in Florida who knows anything, Democrats and Republicans are saying these numbers where it's like, it's a, you know, Biden's up 10 or 11 in Florida are ridiculous. He's not up 10 and 11. They know the dynamic in that state. And uh, Republicans seem to stop talking to pollsters in October. And then like, you know, remember uh, uh, Andrew Gillum was up in 19 of the last 20 polls outside the margin of error or something like that, beating Ron DeSantis, and Ron DeSantis won the election in 2018. So there is this thing where it's possible that there has been a kind of withdrawal of affect among Trump voters where they are, they've lost their enthusiasm or they're feeling worried or they're concerned or something like that, and they're just not answering the phone. Or, you know, they see the readout on the phone and they're not answering the phone. But that they'll be there for him. And then just the question then is, 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 is how many of those 
people there really are. I mean, there is a there is the worst poll number for Trump ever, uh, which could be play a factor in this, is a poll that came out last night from Siena of the 22nd Congressional District in New York, which is a, a poll of a, of a congressional race uh, in which the Democrat is now six or seven points up on the Republican. Now, this is a weird district. It was represented for many, many, many years by a conservative Democrat named Maurice Hinchy for 20 or 30 years or something like that, like a pro-life conservative Democrat. But it's mostly a Republican one. Trump won the district by 16 in 2016. And according to this poll last night, Biden is up by one. That is a 17-point shift in Trump's direction. And that's, of course, in a state that it doesn't matter electorally because obviously Biden is going to win New York. But if in a Republican district that he won by 16, Biden is now, you know, tied or up, that's the ball game. That is a nationalized race. That's where you know it's an app. That means a Republican district has turned against him. That is not a suburban, that's not Mr. Suburban District. That is a upstate New York, rust belt, small cities, not affluent area. And they, if, if it's right, they've had enough of it. So that's the soft, the, you're observing the softness across the upper Midwest. It's right. I mean, mostly in the the Sun Belt is is weak too, but the, the bottom falling out in the polls across the Midwest, not just Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, but places right. like uh, Ohio and Iowa, right? Um, and then, and then that yeah, it's a uniform swing. Then you have these weird other numbers that suggest the uniform swing. Like, is Joni Ernst, the Republican senator in Iowa, in trouble? Uh, her rival Teresa Greenfield. There's one poll in which Teresa Greenfield is now firmly in the lead. Teresa Greenfield has raised a jaw-dropping amount of money. She raised $28 million in the second quarter or something like that in Iowa. Like that, that's not, you know, that's beyond belief. And then, of course, you have this question of what's going on with Lindsey Graham in South Carolina uh, and Republicans now have what 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 they have is they can seize on the sex scandal uh, that is afflicting the Republican the Democratic candidate in North Carolina who appeared to be running away with that race against Tom Tillis, Cal Cunningham, who is now you know basically involved in multiple sex scandals involving adulteries and stuff that he may have done while he was a colonel in the National Guard or something like that. I can't quite I, I'm really reading the stories, but but when you're when you're like hoping to have a seat saved by a sex scandal and that's like that's that's the best news that you've got. That's that's pretty that's pretty grim. Can I finish with one thing cuz and I, I you know how uh, Abe, you know, we talk about how nothing goes right, nothing has gone right in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. So, um, the Nobel Prize for Literature came out this morning. Uh, it's an American has won the Nobel Prize for Literature, and I, for the first time in my life, I can say without qualification that the American uh, laureate is someone of whom I have never heard. It's a poet named Louise Gluck. I've never heard of her. I've probably read her because I do sort of read poetry in magazines, but like a like people don't recognize bylines. I'm not sure. I I'm like this is not right. Like it. I, I'm sorry, but I'm a I'm a I'm a highly literate person who reads a lot, and it's one thing if they give the award to some somebody from Sweden that I never heard of. But if you come to America and the one person that you pick to win the to, to be the laureate is an obscure American poet that I've never heard of, it's time to stop giving out. The, so they should stop giving out the Nobel Prize for Literature anyway. But Abe, have you heard of Louise Gluck? I haven't. You're a liter- you're a literary person. I haven't. I haven't. Um, but. Um... I have to say, you know, when it comes to poetry in the 21st century, so few Americans have heard 
of any contemporary poets, right? Yeah. I mean, but I, this is yeah. sort of the opposite of when they gave it to Bob Dylan. Yeah, I know. Well, it's Bob Dylan, but I mean, you know, they there are poets that we Mark Strand. Yeah. Like I could name twenty poets. True. Fair enough. Yeah, living American poets. Um, you know, uh, Mark Strand, Rita Dove, uh, uh, Billy Collins. I, don't, I mean, there are people that want, I have heard of, uh, and I haven't heard of her. That's all I'm saying. Is that is am I? I, is, I have heard of that, her. I, I have heard of her, but oh, I, I I think of yay. her. But I think of her as the kind of she's. The was she poet. on Beverly Hills Nine Hundred Two? No, she was because not. We've already established that you know you now know <laughs> Ian Ziering and Louise Gluck. This is I really also I I had a I had a Melrose Place phase of my young life too, okay. so we won't go there. But she but she strikes me as the perfect poet for the the avid new yorker reader do you know what i mean like the i mean even the how she was even in the announcement when they praised her they're like her poetry has this austere beauty which i kind of read uh, i mean i've, I've read a part it's fine but like you said john i mean there are, if, if this is the person you're going to pluck from uh, quasi-obscurity and elevate with a nobel prize it was a strange choice but she strikes me as one of the, the the sort of deliberately obscure poets that the 21st century has produced so many of um and who whose breakout moment is winning a Nobel Prize and everyone going, who? Um, I mean, they did this, they've done this with novelists as well, but uh, yeah, it, it's an odd job. Yeah, but not American. Not American. But not American yeah. novelists in whatever country they pluck a novelist out of and make the laureate of, that writer is is almost certainly the most famous writer in that country at that moment or one of the two or three most famous. Yeah, uh, I mean, there, there have been there have been interesting choices over the last five or six years. You know, Svetlana Alievich, who is a who isn't even a novelist, right, writes these kind of oral histories and things like that, um, but is certainly uh, fantastically eminent where she where she is. My point is that I am the sort of person who should know who the laureate is. The laureate is not anybody that I know, and so. Uh, that, of course, means, once again, that, you know, Philip Roth died. He didn't get it. Um, there are all kinds of people who aren't getting it who, you know, who by rights, uh, who write in English, who should be, uh, even people I don't like, like Thomas Pynchon would make more sense. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I don't think, I think Thomas Pynchon is a, is a, is a purveyor of, of argle bargle. But, you know, Cormac McCarthy, I don't know. I mean, fine, they're men, so... Apparently, we're probably not going to give it to a man anytime soon. Well, didn't they have the – was this the Nobel Prize group that had the scandal and couldn't give out a prize for a while? Were they, yes. they, they had some sort of Me Too-ish type scandal, right? Yes. So it but, had to be right. and then And then last year, of course, they gave it to a uh, slavish defender of the last genocidal monster of Europe. Give it to Peter Handke, who is a German writer or Austrian writer, who who is a defender and friend, you know, was a defender of Slobodan Milosevic's. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I don't know. Anyway, I just wanted to bring that up to broaden our horizons and then basically uh, give people a chance to make fun of me for being an illiterate because I I don't I don't sit at the feet of the glories of. Uh, Louise Gluck. Can I? I will also say my 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 daughter, who is in eleventh grade, is is uh, is studying John Donne right now. Uh, the uh, and um, man, that is hard. That that po I I somehow didn't remember this from my own you know old English literature studying days, but she she. I'm I, I'm lost in admiration that she and her classmates are are able to decipher what they are reading because it is it is like some of it's like stereo instructions. I mean, it is really not only sort of bafflingly obscure and the sentence construction or you know however you want to put it, the meter doesn't quite. It is really. Uh, difficult. So I've never heard of Louise Gluck and I don't understand John Donne. And this basically is an indication that I'm, you know, I'm now a Philistine and have lost my capacity to understand high, high art and high culture. And I blame Donald Trump. 
Because why not? Everybody blames Donald Trump for everything, so I can blame Donald Trump for everything. Okay, but if no man is an island, right? Trump is perhaps the exception to that rule, right? He is. <laughs> he he right now is on an island. He's stranded. That was a fantastic poll. I want to congratulate you. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for going to a John Donne poem to conclude this podcast after this strange peroration on my part. For Abe, Christine, and Noah, we'll see you tomorrow. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.